This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first Dojo Live episode of this week, Tuesday. Where are we on Tuesday? We're on Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Wednesday. (laughs) And it's not the first one. It's actually the second one. And I'm a little bit of a mess today, but it is Wednesday, November 9th, 2022 for our second Dojo Live show. (laughs) My name is Kim Lantis, and it's my pleasure to be hosting today along with America Guerrero, who does have her date straight. (laughs) Yes. And of course, the most important person of today's show is Danielle Keevan. She is the VP of Finance at Paddle. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you, Kim, in America. Thank you. It's going to be a fun one. And especially thank you joining us all the way from the Netherlands. It's like you're winding down your day. And so we really appreciate you being here with us. My pleasure. So as we get started, we're going to be talking all about, you know, the fun stuff, payments and billing and how that works into a SaaS and just SaaS companies. But before we get to that, we really would love to get to know you, Danielle, a bit better. I understand your personal history is quite an international one. We'd love to know your story about your passions and what sort of led up to your time with Paddle. Yeah. Um, well, I think it all started. Um, I was, and I always say this, I'm Dutch-ish because I was technically born in the Netherlands, <laughs> but I wasn't raised here. Um, I moved to Aruba fairly young. Um, and for those of you who know Aruba, it's a very touristic island and hospitality is kind of the industry there. Um, so when I left um, Aruba to study in the U.S., um, when I returned, it was quite fairly normal that I would enter into that industry. Um, I did not expect to do finance. I thought finance was boring. I don't know any children growing up to say, I hope to do accounting or finance in the future. Um, So that was also not necessarily my ambition. Um, But when I started out, um, a casino auditor was the only role open. So I ended up rolling into a very hands-on investigating, looking at stuff and how the gaming industry worked, um, just in an era where the controls were being designed. So it was quite chaotic when I stepped in, but also quite exciting. I felt very 007 trying to find fraud and all that kind of crazy stuff. Um, and from there, when I took the job, I had asked to move, be moved to operations six months in. And they said, oh, no, but you have a net for finance. So we're promoting you instead. Most people would be happy. I was not. Um, but then when I rolled into that promotion cycle, I really, my curiosity has always prevailed. And I think Growing up in a corporate environment also makes you very, um, you want to try to standardize processes, which being in the Caribbean, uh, we are never standard. Uh, So all the banking infrastructures are different. Payments are different. All the flows are different. People, everything was like, so learning to fit a chaotic environment into corporate requested structured and audits was kind of where I grew up um, in the finance space for the hospitality industry for about 10 years. Um, And that without me realizing it until afterwards, um, primed me as well for the tech space, which is often quite chaotic when we talk about finance. Um, So I think from there uh, in the Caribbean, they started sending me out to do audit cleanups, hotel openings, um, everything that had gone wrong, they would send me in almost like a team to fix it. Um, And so at one point I figured, you know, (laughs) I was still young, working hard, but hey, I was like, the Europe has a myth that you work only eight hours. Um, so let me move to Europe and see if it's better. I a myth. Burn. I have not found an eight-hour job yet, but I have found a lot of joy 
um, in working in a tech space in finance because it's so wild and diverse. And the most spaces you walk in, there's just massive learnings to be had. Um, my first role at Booking was all about scalability of global volumes um, and streaming processes that had controls, but also could like flow seamlessly in high volumes. Then my role at MessageBird was really building everything up from scratch um, because I think finance, as we had like a pre-conversation, is usually an afterthought. So how do you position that? And then here at Paddle, uh, my last move was really because I was so curious to enter the tech space that focused on finance, where finance was just not a back of the house role, but was an active role in the organization with product and engineering, designing everything that we were rolling out and really the center of focus for product and tech. And so that's kind of what landed me here as VP of finance. That's amazing. I mean, I love a lot of things that you said. The one that sticks out most in my mind is this idea of curiosity prevailing. And then of course, the idea of having to be agile, adaptable in a space that's moving so quickly and, you know, of course, the SaaS software as a service moves so incredibly quickly. And then more and more and more every day, it's becoming more and more international, more and more global. And so I can completely see why um, a platform like Paddle is necessary. So let's dive in real quick to Paddle, exactly who you are and the problem it is that you're solving for SaaS companies. Paddle solves everything. <laughs> so that's the, the, the summary of it. She's um, like, bar? Hi. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think it's super interesting because even thinking about um, the tech space, often the focus is so much on the software that we're not focused on thinking about controls and how do we monetize and how do we capture revenue or stop, you know, loss of revenue or revenue leakage, et cetera. And I think that's also what motivated our CEO to come up with Paddle. Um, to be like the end-to-end solution for all software sellers to be like, we'll take you to the world. And in essence, Battle does invoicing, um, it does billing, it does payments, it does, um, it manages your chargebacks. We manage everything that has to do with taxes and we take full liability for it. So for example, if you get a tax consultant's advice, they'll always make you sign a waiver that they're not actually liable. Uh, we're saying no, we're actually comfortable with our expertise and we will assume the liability on your behalf for to file taxes and ensure that you're compliant. Um, so we actually really take care of the end-to-end journey from billing to payments to risk, as well as anything that has to do with taxes. So like I said, we do everything. (laughs) That's amazing. A really, really big claim and one that you're backing up. I love it. And you know, it's kind of funny because the irony of most companies, while we all have a higher mission, right? And, And what we do as companies, ultimately the bottom line is the bottom line and we need to be making money. So it's kind of funny that the, the money side is oftentimes that afterthought. That, that you had mentioned. So I think this is a really good segue into exactly the topic of today's conversation, which is payments and billings, choosing the finance stack for your SaaS. How to choose the best finance stack for your SaaS company and why you should begin with the M in mind. So please share with us, why did you choose this topic? Um, I think for me, just beginning with the end in mind is one of my favorite um, habits of the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, and everything that I've started with, um, from the smallest things, um, I, I actually also, sorry, it's not meant to be anything, but I paint in my private space as well. Um, but I always picture the end picture before I start at the beginning. And sometimes you lay the foundations working mm-hmm. backwards to get to your end product. And I think, I think that's, that's a great analogy. 
Yeah, that's really the best way that you can plan for your organization. Um, yes, your objective number one is starting your business is to get customers in and to get gain traction, but also already start thinking ahead of like, what will this mean if I 10x, if I 100x and like, how do I support that infrastructure? And that's kind of how you should actually always think about anything you're doing in finance, but payments specifically. I think your choice of payment stack is more long lasting than almost most marriages. Um, you sign up for it, you commit with it, you embed it in your software, and it's very difficult to switch it later, especially when you're growing in high volumes. Um, and I think therefore, um, most I think software companies, especially if you're a small organization, you will say Google is my friend and I'll just go online and see what's out there. Um, but really take some time to actually look at what does it mean? Like how easy is it to implement? Is it the most cost effective? What are, what are the acceptance rates as well? And specifically to the markets where you're actually running your business. Because the solution for you might not always be the best fit for your customer, depending on where your customer is based. So I think all of these things do have to be evaluated. Um, most companies initially think about billing in a sense of, hey, let's do it in-house. Um, I'll run a little Excel <laughs> or maybe a Word doc and PDF it and looks professional. And like you, you can run that for a while. Um, however, when you start splitting that choice as well of running your billing and invoicing separately, you're also creating more liabilities for yourself to make sure like, are your tax codes up to code? Are you running the correct taxable rates on those accounts? Are you overcharging? Are you undercharging? Are you overcollecting or undercollecting? So all of these decisions can be quite need to be considered and you're opening your, yourself up to that risk, especially if you choose to do your billing in-house um, on a long term. Um, so if you go out there and look at pricing, it can also be quite confusing. Um, not all billing options that give, they're not gonna give you a price for what they're gonna do. It, it, it varies on location, it varies on your card, it varies on what is being used and, and et cetera. It's so many variable products um, within your, your payment stack um, that it's not always very clear what they will charge you. I can tell you like billing engines typically go for about 5% or more. Um, so that's more or less a fixed price and it'll grow as you grow. Um, but I think this is also where, in my humble opinion, I know I work at Paddle, I'm a little bit biased, um, but for me, this is where Paddle comes in. It offers you an end-to-end -end solution. Um, it doesn't have hidden fees. It's very straightforward. Um, and I think that that's where our strength comes in as well in our product offering, how we can help people actually roll out our, their software. Um, and so that's the power, I think, behind what we're offering, because billing often is expensive on its own. Payment is very unclear on what they're charging you and they'll do whatever they want as well, um, as we experience often. <laughs> um, so and Paddle really actually is the one that stands for our customers. We try to shield our customers from all of these variable things. And we make sure also that your customers um, are are, that you're protected from fraudulent customers, because that's also a, a massively growing um, challenge right now in the tech space. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think I think in some ways it comes down to a culture perhaps of transparency, I mean, internally as well as externally. How have you seen just that sense of we genuinely care play out at Paddle or with your customers? I think towards our customers, um, it's always interesting because I think from the finance perspective, especially, we're always trying. But how to do you even get them to believe it, to be honest? Because yeah, no, in the finance yeah. world, there's it's got a, 
you know, yeah. a bad reputation, let's say. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I was going to go for. I think as a finance professional, you always want to protect your bottom line. <laughs> so when something goes wrong, you're immediately, well, we should charge the customer or we should go back. And then, you know, and then there's the, the very strong balance of having the VP of customer support being like, wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> and like you have those dialogues and really um, have that open discussion from both sides. Like, but what does this actually mean for us long term? What is what kind of impact does this have on our customer? Does it impact the brand trust that we have? Does it impact their experience? Um, the, is there a risk of churn? And so these are very valid considerations that we make before we say, well, you know, this is actually on the customer before we charge the customer. It doesn't mean that we never charge something onto the customer. Sometimes this is generally um, the customer set up something differently, et cetera. There's different reasons that this can happen, um, but this will never happen ad hoc, which you will see right. the payment providers. I love it. And I wanted to come back just to the idea of who your customers are exactly. Um, I imagine, do you, are you helping anywhere from, you know, startups all the way through to enterprise? And you had mentioned, you know, a lot of startups, a lot of people, this being, you know, the finance finance side of your SaaS being an afterthought or like, a, uh, th this is fine. This will work for now. We just need to get that MVP out. So what does that look like? I'm guessing you want to get ahead of it. Are you willing and are you working with very small companies all the way up to large, enormous yeah. ones? We have different sized companies, anywhere from startups straight out the door to mid-sized businesses and also enterprise. Um, so we definitely do have a focus now on growing our larger customers as well. Um, but we have a strong serving to our startup um, segment as well. We have a self um, self sign up, self serve um, component to our business as well to make sure that it's easy and accessible to everyone. Um, I see this as a solution for anyone who's trying to roll out software, regardless of the size. I think where it gets super interesting nowadays is with the legislation changing, um, especially if you, we look at the US, you have like 50 states doing it all differently. Uh, for some, some it's taxable, some software is not. Um, sometimes like calling is a software, like a Zoom or a BlueJeans or, you know, any that's a software and other states it's considered telecom. Um, so there's so many little things that are different in the SaaS space. Um, and I think we can service that whole space correctly. And we do so with the best interest of our customer in, at heart. So, so I think that's what I like that we founded ourselves with a mission and vision. I love it. Yeah. So you are just now focusing on the US, right? Our main customer base is US based, but we actually service globally. Um, so we, we do enable global um, selling of software and we monitor the entire global landscape for tax compliance um, and submissions. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm wondering in, with you and the, the platform that you're building, how much of this kind of investigation and keeping up with laws and changes, uh, are you able, is this all manpower internally with the Paddle team in terms of like research and update or are you able to work technology and some forms of, you know, AI or something into yeah. your technology to make that possible? Because it's certainly a lot to, to keep straight. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. And I think from a finance perspective, and especially because we are in the fintech space, the two areas that the finance team is very dedicated to and committed to and monitors closely are definitely payment compliance legislation that change globally and the tax legislation. 
Um, so when I stepped into this, this role, um, I wasn't as tax savvy as I am today. Today, I know way more than I ever thought I would know about tax. And I really actually enjoy it more than I thought I would. Um, but I think it's super interesting because stepping into taxes, there is some technology. However, given that the countries itself where business is being conducted are not all the same and not all of them have that technology in place and they're also not all technology driven. And so that really lands you in a space where you do have to have a combination of where can I leverage technology, machine learning, or almost like a social news feed to see, hey, what are the tax updates that are coming through? And on the flip side being, okay, but I also have to manually do a check through what is happening. And the third thing that we also do is we have local partnerships that will also be an extra safety net in case we didn't catch something that will have a local person or an office on the ground that says, hey, there's a legislation change that took place here and there. Um, wow. That's, yeah, that's what we do for payments. Um, the interesting thing is when I asked multi-billion dollar companies that were managing their tax risk, how they were doing this, they're like, we manually also, they kind of go through like their, their space where they're doing business to make sure in addition to having that partnership and, and technology as well. So there isn't like a cure all bandaid. I do think that the great thing, well, the great thing or, or challenging thing about taxes are that typically changes come all on the 1st of January. So you do monitor your own compliance. What are the volumes? What are your revenues to become taxable? Um, but you also monitor, especially the end of the year, Q4 and Q3, to see what legislation is, is tentatively to be passed at the beginning of the year. When it comes to payments, whole different ballgame. Oh. Anybody, anybody anywhere can wake up and say, well, we're going to do something different this year or this month in my country. And you have to be compliant with this and this set of rules. Um, so it, that I think for us, um, I think for businesses, not just for us, I think monitoring the payment legislation compliance space has been a little bit more volatile. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine, you know, and I think you've made a really great case in terms of why it's so important to think about, you know, payments, your, your finance stack, you know, the payments and billions early in the game. Um, what are, if you, but if you could lay that out a bit clear, like what are the, some of the risks or things you've seen happen when companies have not done this? versus when it's well thought out from the very beginning, what is the benefits that's kind of rolled out more explicitly? Yeah, and to be fair, it's also a combination of things. Like I think um, for me, it was interesting coming, stepping out of a massive company into a smaller scale-up startup. And massive company, you need something, you hire and you, you throw technology at it or you bring like a really expensive AI in. But in a scale-up or, or even if you're bootstrapped, that's not a luxury that you have. And so you will have moments where, yes, you should think of the future and be very clear about where you want to go. Um, but you should also be realistic at where you're at today and how much you can spend and also measure maybe when is the right tipping point to do A or B. And so maybe B is the better solution, but you only have this amount of money. <laughs> so that's what it is. And I think then you all kind of balance to say, OK, I'll go for A, but I know where I need to be. So at least I can take mitigating step to have a process in place that if I need to pivot, I can. So I think that's important to notice. And to so, going, so going back to the analogies here, like let's say you're trying to build an addition onto your home or something like that. You're going to have the floor plan and you know exactly where you're headed. Exactly. Even if this, this summer you're only able to lay down the foundation 
and and put up some the frames, you know, or you know, get get that structure built, and then we'll choose the flooring and the tiles to come later, or whatever that might be. Exactly, <laughs> and I think that's that's really critical because I think it's also it, while it's important to build for tomorrow, it's very difficult to run a successful business with your head in the clouds. Um, so you need to find that balance of knowing exactly where you're building to, even if it is just a foundation, but to know where you have to get to. Um, and I think you hit the right point in saying foundation, because if your foundation isn't laid right, you cannot scale as quickly in the future. And I think that really has become a bottleneck to many um, tech, many in a tech space that they've built something that's so complex that it's not flexible. And often what you'll then run into that you'll have to rebuild what you originally rolled out, which is also quite expensive and costly. So making sure your foundation skills is the most important thing that you have to balance and think. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I bring up, I guess, my next question, next question earlier in the show, you'd mentioned just the cost and the headache of what it is to have to rebuild, right? Your, your finance stack, if it wasn't laid down correctly the first time. Does Paddle come in? Like, obviously, I think, well, I will say it's clear that you help companies build that finance, finance stack correctly from the beginning. But what about the overhaul or how does this work in terms of companies who've already got something working? It's not working as ideally as it should. And they want to do, you know, an overhaul. How how are you able to help with that? And is this a one size sort of fits all like this is how paddle works or do you have this adaptability to fit in and shift according to what's already happening inside each company each each client yeah so so i think where paddle um differentiates itself and i'm, I'm very thankful for that um i think historically being in tech and finance when you're sold a product like everything will be automated. <laughs> and then, you know, best case scenario, you're hoping for 80% automation. And then reality is often 50 if you're lucky. Um, and so I think what Paddle has done very well is that, yes, we have automation. However, it's also people that are actually looking at it, supporting you and reviewing it. And it would, when it comes to switching over or implementing Paddle, um, you would not be on your own. Like, especially if you're already like a sizable company ripping out your payments, it's a nightmare. And so this is where we'll actually partner with the sizable companies specifically, just because of the sheer volume and the complexity around it to make sure that a transition goes smoothly. Um, what I've seen that we've done is similar to um, what you would do if you're differentiating your payment stack. It's like you'll have more than one payment provider and then Paddle will come in and we'll like start going slowly and then ramp up the volumes as we get to scale and, and grow up. And so that's basically the approach we take. We don't just throw you on there and leave you to fend for yourself. Um, there is support and we partner with our customers to make sure that transition is smooth. Um, but I, I think that's the most challenging um, decision that you need to make is when you choose your payment stack, because it is one of those fundamental mm -hmm. things. Um, that can actually scale or be a bottleneck for you in the future. What are some of the things that you would say if there's this checklist of sorts of when it comes to choosing that finance stack, what should companies be thinking through in, in that? Is there like a sequential sort of suggested order? I don't have the, I don't, I could have prepared a checklist. I didn't. Um, but if I, <laughs> if, I, if I, if I had to think through the process, my first question would be where are the bulk of my customers based? And what are the preferred payment methods? 
Like for example, if your customers are based in Brazil and you're only accepting debit cards, that's not compatible. So I think that's also a fundamental decision. Like in Brazil, they take boletos. It's a different payment method. You know, you need a different technology. If you're thinking about like the uh, Germany or the Netherlands, ideal is a very popular payment method. So if you only offer credit cards, probably like a big part of your customers may not have a credit card. So like there's a lot of differences market to market. So I think it's very important to focus on what are my, where are my customers? What is the most popular payment method? And potentially also what market do I want to unlock? So maybe today your market is Brazil, but I also want to do business in Germany. So I may need two payment providers or one payment provider that offers that solution. So I think knowing your customer base and thinking about your own company future, where you want to grow is very important. The other thing I think that to really look at is how much are you willing to spend on it? Because this is a cost of goods sold that will permanently be there. So as you scale, the cost will scale. And so that's just something to keep in mind. What is the percentage that you want from your cost of goods sold to be there permanently almost? And how can you optimize it? Make sure you negotiate the best deals or like going forward, how do I lock in the positive rates that I got? So these are all things to really balance and focus on. Um, the other thing, like I said earlier, think about volumes. Will this scale? Does this payment provider only offer me payments? Do they also maybe have other functionalities that I can leverage? And I think more important now as business owners is how am I protecting myself from fraud? Um, the fraud numbers are growing. And I think especially with payment providers, if your business is deemed a risk, they will remove you from their platform. What does that mean for my business? Would I be at risk of losing my payment methods? And so I think these are all val valuable angles to take a look at before choosing your payment stack. Super good points. Yes. We have a question from the audience. This is from Antonio Osuna. He says, hi, thank you for sharing. I'm a digital architect working in education, but I'm really looking forward to work in fintech. How would you recommend I start? Enter a happy face here. Oh, okay. He sent an emoji. <laughs> <laughs> I love the enter happy face here. Um, Honestly, I think there are so many opportunities out there. And especially if digital architect in education, I would really tailor my application to what I'm applying for. Um, so for example, um, especially in that space, if you can go to multiple places, but you really want to go into payments or you want to go like figure out first where you want to start, because FinTech is huge. Like I mentioned, there's tax, there's FP&A. There's operations, there's accounting, there's compliance, there's like, so there's, there's like literally even engineers that are solely dedicated to some of these pieces now. So what specifically do you want to do? And really, I would write that motivational letter. Um, I would also almost say less is more. So like really get your main message or motivation out there. Dig deep, don't make it fluffy, but dig deep as to what is your intrinsic motivation step, stepping into that place. And I think that will really catch attention. Um, the other thing also I have to say, I think I've read somewhere that typically recruiters like take a couple of seconds and they flip through like resume, make your resume different. Take a minute, like, I don't know, add like a picture. I don't know of, of like, it could be your hobby or something. Be a little bit random because the tech space, we actually look for talent and personality, um, which is makes a finance team a little bit different than in any other areas as well. And I think being in education, um, that really provides a great door to be like, I'm in education, I have this background and I can offer these services, but I can also help train or something like you can add additional value into the space that you're already in. 
I think that's beautiful. It flashed me back to uh, Legally Blonde and Elle Woods. I think her resume was pink and scented, right? Oh. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for your, your question, Antonio. And thank you, Danielle, for your very amazing tips on how to make that transition happen. You know, um, talking about transitions, I wanted to transition over to Paddle specifically, your company culture, one of the things that you mentioned when you're doing your checklist, of course, of things that companies might keep in mind was this idea of really think about where, where your customers are located and how they're um, doing things in the payment methods that you're, they're using. And I think it leads, leans to our tendency as humanity to be sort of very egocentric in the sense of, you know, I've, I'm based, you know, primarily in the United States, Mexico. So we've got debit cards, credit cards, PayPal. I mean, like, that's what we use, right? Um, and so it's, it's strange for me to think you listed off things that I'd never even heard of before. <laughs> and so as we step out of trying to force ourselves to be less egocentric and more, you know, open our eyes to how big the world really can be, what does that look like at Paddle being, you know, an international company? I think you've got operations mainly in the United States as well as the United Kingdom. Uh, what does that look like for you and how have you kind of gone about managing all of that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very excited. I generally love tech companies because I found they've made the workplace so much better. Um, and with that, I mean, like it's, it's super diversified and you have all of these cultures Um and I think culture becomes real in, in some very challenging situations. Like I'll share an example from the past where um, there were neighboring countries um, in the Balkans that went to war, not realizing I had two colleagues from, from both sides sitting right next to each other. And like, it makes it real, right? So it actually, I think culture enriches us and diversity enriches us because it takes it from screen and from the, from the news and brings it home. Um, so I, I think there's tremendous culture. I think, um, for, for Paddle, it's just been amazing having such a diversity um, of people to work with. And I think you and I were laughing originally when you said, well, English and English, US and UK, what are the main cultural differences? And for me, um, this is my first a British or UK based headquarter company that I'm working at. So I've studied, lived in the US, like kind of raised in a little bit more of an American culture. Um, and my friends were like, are you sure? And I'm just like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, some things can be very subtle. And then somebody said, if a British person tells you, oh, that's interesting, that's actually not a good thing. My first weekend, I had made this massive analysis and I sent it to my CFO and he goes, that's interesting. I'm like, oh, that's not good. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I was told that it's not interesting. And he's like, no, but I really mean it's interesting. So I think the, the key to cultures is definitely 100% to assume good intent. Like, even if you're offended, be unafraid to say, hey, that kind of stung. I understood this when you said that. Is that what you meant? Because ver vocalizing the, ex the experience really diffuses assumptions, the negative assumptions, and, and avoids escalations. So our op rule to operate is to assume good intent. Even if things are like completely fudged when they come out of your mouth, assume good intent. And I think that saves so many cultural misunderstandings and it frees up psychological safety to talk about things that we think we understand and if we understand them correctly. 
That is absolutely beautiful. I love it. And those are my two very amazing pearls of wisdom coming off of today's show with you, Danielle. And that's allowing curiosity to prevail and to assume everything with good intent. I love it. Thank you so very much. You know, we've actually come to the end of our half hour today, if you can believe it or not. Um, it was a pleasure to get to learn from you, Danielle, your experience, what you're doing with Paddle and, of course, what Paddle is able to do for SaaS companies. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, you're welcome. Well, stick around just a minute as we go off air. But before we do, we would like to remind you about next week. Yes. Well, tomorrow we're not going to have a show because we're going to have our all hands. And on Thursday, we're going to have a show on Thursday and another in and. Oh, sorry, I'm confused. Too. See, now, now America's all confused in the dates. There is no show tomorrow on Thursday yeah. because, yes, we do have our all hands. But join us on Monday for our recap show. Thank yep. you. Yes, that one. What's well, Yes, we'll be recapping um, both Kishore's show from yesterday and Danielle's show from today and introducing the next shows coming up this next week. And there are actually going to be two of them with Chowley and Trusty Care. And Wednesday is going to be the second segment of our AWS series. And join us on Friday for another People Matters panel. Now, until then, stay safe, everyone, right here Dojo Live. Thank you again. Bye. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com. Thank you.